0: And that's not if, that's when. That's a guarantee. And then it says, to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray. Here we are praying one more time. Earnestly pray for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. That is a concept that is all over this book. The word altruistic appears twice before page one. This is always about helping somebody else. It gets me out of me. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heart rate. What we have following this is a checklist. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. If you've written down all the things Bob and I found in here that call for writing, you will have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We covered that, didn't we? We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. Did we cover that? Yeah. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. See that? We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. Do we cover that? Sure. We have listed the people we hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. That was in the resentment inventory and the sexual misconduct inventory. We did that, right? If you've done a four-step some other way and you can't say yes to all of those things, please try this. That's the checklist. Have you done these things? And then here it says in this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self will has blocked you off from Him. If you've already made a decision, that would be the third step decision, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, we just covered that, you've made a good beginning. This being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Step four is one of the easiest things you'll ever do. It's a little bit long, it's real easy. We'll start again at 2.30. I just love that part.
1: My name is Bob Darrell. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. It's a long day. Are you having fun? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one couple things, uh, I, I don't know what it's my lot in life, but I, I end up with having a lot of guys that I end up sponsoring that are sober a long time, that are 20 years plus sober and they're dying. And some of them are almost suicidal or getting ready to drink and they're very lonely and depressed and they're on the verge of getting on meds or doing something and they're desperate And they come to me and uh, they've done everything in Alcoholics Anonymous there is to do except to really do this. (laughs) Which is like they haven't done anything really, but (laughs) being kind. They they were on a lot of committees and they went to a lot of meetings. And and they didn't drink. (laughs) Oh boy, didn't they drink. And I had this guy a couple years ago. He was, he's actually sober longer, a little bit longer than I was. And he came to me and asked me to sponsor him. And his name was Jerry, and Jerry's a a great guy. Now, Jerry was sober 23 years with the benefit of step none. To say he was a little brisk would be an understatement. I I mean, he was a little bit wound up, a little bit tight, and a lonely guy, an angry, lonely guy. And uh, so I got Jerry going through the steps, and we get to step four, and I told him, I said, I want you to make a list of your resentments. And he's an old ex-Navy chief. Tough guy. Deep gravelly voice. I don't have any resemblance. Nobody gets to me. I said, Jerry, you got I know you have resentment. No, I don't I, I let go of it, they don't get to me. <laughs> well, he's the most resentful guy I know, right? So I said I said, okay, Jerry, in your case, we're gonna do something different. I don't want you to make a list of resentments. I want you to make a list of people you feel smugly superior to. <laughs> And he gets this look on his face, like, "Oh, this is going to be a long list." <laughs> and then about about a week later, I'm at the step study meeting. To after the meeting, and he's got me quartered in the parking lot, and he's going on and on about all these people and his family and people in AA and. And he just knows what's wrong with everything. He's Just this and that, this and this person, this and that, and that. He's going on, on and on. And it's just wearing me out. And when he's finally done, I said, "Look, Jerry, I got I, I, enough. I'm going home. But I want you, will you do something tonight? Would you just say a prayer?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll say a prayer. What prayer? Let me to say." I said, "Just, Jerry, go home, get down on your knees, and say, God, please, tomorrow, would you judge me and treat me the way I've been judging and treating people today?" And I walked away from him, and I get halfway to my car, and I, I'm not going to tell you what he said, but he, I heard this, yo, across the parking lot. <laughs> right. as, as it sunk in what that prayer would have meant. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I really, I really enjoyed the things that Scott covered in the fear section. And just briefly, uh, it uses the word, uh, one, the very beginning of the fear section, it says something that uh, I want to talk about for a minute because it seems to be one of the reasons I can't manage my own life. It's one of the reasons I'm here it's one of the reasons I can't trust my own judgments about my life and my own defensiveness. It's talking about fear third line up from the bottom of 67. It said this fears that says they set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? What's that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means to me is that I have All my life I've had these fears and then I have these reactions to those fears that are my defense mechanisms. The way that I defend myself against my fears or try to protect myself from the thing I'm afraid is going to happen. And what eventually happens is I make the fear come true. Psychiatrists call it self-fulfilling prophecies. And I'll give you a couple quick examples. Early sobriety. My first relationship in sobriety, I was a little over a year sober. Uh, I, I didn't know it, but I really didn't have much self-esteem. I believed my judgments of myself more than I believed anything you would say to me or that God would love me or anything else, really. And because I didn't have much self-esteem, I enter into this relationship coming from behind, with a sense in a, that I'm not really up to this. Like in a fear, here's my primary fear, is that she's going to dump me for somebody who has more going on for him than me. Right? That's my basic fear. But how I try to protect myself from that fear is the fear drives me to be the guy who's possessive, to be the guy who's smothering, the guy that's always watching her. If she's hugging a guy in the meeting, I'm going, what about Hey, 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 hey. hey. What are you doing there? You know, I'm that guy. I'm that crazy guy, right? I'm the guy who's driving by her apartment in the middle of the night to make sure no guy's cars are there. I'm the guy that's, when she leaves the room, I look through her purse, make sure no guy's phone numbers are in there. You know, I'm, I'm that guy. She said to me one time, she said, every time I look up at a meeting, you're looking at me. I don't know what you're talking about. She said, you're smothering me. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was doing all of that, but I couldn't see it because I'm driven by fear, right? I'm driven by fear. And what happened is that I literally drove her out of my life. And as she's leaving, a little voice in the back of my head said, see, you were right. I like being right. (laughs) Even if I'm broken and alone and feel like killing myself at least I was right and I think somehow that's that kind of obsessive energy that I pour into it is like a type of prayer when I make it come true I had a job one time the last time my parents ever really went to bat for me I, I was kind of destitute and I was in a lot of trouble lost another job and my father went to last time he went to bat he had this friend who had started an environmental engineering outfit. And this is back in the 70s when environmental air pollution, water pollution was cutting-edge stuff. This, was, this guy was on the ground floor of an industry that was about to explode. And he was doing testing for air pollution and industry and water pollution and designing scrubbers and doing all that stuff. And he gave me a job and an opportunity to pay for my education and so I could become an environmental engineer. Which for a guy who had nothing going for him, this was a tremendous opportunity. But I went to work and I was afraid. And my fear, my primary fear is, is I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected by the guys that work there. I'm afraid that their conversations out of earshot for me are something along the lines of, you see that Bob? You know the only primary fear is, is I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected by the guys that work there. I'm afraid that their conversations out of earshot for me are something along the lines of, you see that Bob? You know the only reason he's here is his dad's friends with the guy who owns the company. Normally we would never have anybody like him here. That's my fear is they're going to reject me. So what happened is my fear drove on me to become defensive and on the muscle with those guys, and until I'm the guy that eventually they're calling into the office and they're saying, "Bob, you're a hard worker, but we're going to have to let you go because you're not a team player. Because I'd become the producer of confusion rather than harmony. I was the defensive guy. The guys that I, I took that stance of, "What do you mean by that? You know that kind of that guy," and I made the fear come true. And as I was leaving there, the little voice in my head said, see, you were right. I like being right. (laughs) So in the middle of page 68 in the fear section, it talks about trust being the answer. We think so. We're on the different basis here. Remember the decision we made in step three. We're on the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite infinite, maximum, unlimited capacity God instead of my limited, finite, fallible human self. And one of the reasons that I, I spent, I, I went dry one time for, a lo- for about eight, ten months, and I hold up, the last time I was ever allowed to live in my parents' house, I hold up in the back den and s- sat in front of a TV set for eight months from 7 o'clock in the morning till it went off the air at 1 or 2 o'clock in the night. And I, it's like, if you're with untreated alcoholism, uh, TV's kind of like Valium with a plug. You know what I mean? You just zone out there. And I was fine until my father told me I couldn't do that. He started pressuring me to go get a job or so, get a social life or do something. And I, I, I had a nervous breakdown. And I ended up in the psychiatrist's office, and I was very, he was a good psychiatrist, I was very honest with him. And I told him, I tried to tell him all the things I was afraid of, and I couldn't be very specific because I couldn't leave that, my dad's house and go out on the street sober. I don't know what I'm afraid of, but I'm just overwhelmed with a sense of, of terror Going and facing people and trying to socialize with them sober and mix and go ask for a job and I just can't do it. I've sat there in that chair for so long I'm paralyzed. And I didn't understand what was going on. And he diagnosed me as having free-floating anxiety with panic disorder, which and gave me some medication, which was really a guy. A, I like pills. I, I've always liked pills. As a matter of fact, he's he's writing. He pulls out the prescription pad. And as he's, he's starting to write, I'm feeling better already. <laughs> Just watching him write that. I almost wanted to start crying. Here's a man who understands. I mean, he's, as he's writing the prescription, I'm feeling better, right? But the prescription didn't really help. It took a little bit of the edge off, but it also eventually started a slow burn on the phenomenon of craving because I got a little bit of relief. And you know me, a little bit of relief is never enough for me. But it got me back to where I got the real relief. It got me into the bar, and it got me into the bar with information that when I got out of line, I could tell those people, you know, I know you look I look like an alcoholic, but see, I got free-floating anxiety and panic disorder. <laughs> That's really the problem. But what this psychiatrist said was not completely wrong. This anxiety leading to panic is the result of playing God in my own life. When I am, it's the anxiety of playing God. When I am the center and everything in the universe that revolves around me is my responsibility, there is a lot of things to worry about. There are there's a world full of people out there, and they're all thinking stuff, and it has to do with me somehow, and I don't know what it is, and I got to figure it out, and you got to watch them real closely, and the only way to stay on top of it is just continually accuse them of stuff, and you're bound to be right eventually until you finally <laughs> hit it, what what it is, just, and it's it's awful like that, and this nervous breakdown I had, or which. There's a real thin line between nervous breakdown and surrender. I mean, it's you really don't know which way you're going. And this nervous breakdown I had was because it was too much. I think what when I'm running my life and all, it's all on my shoulders, it's like going into your kitchen and getting the blender that's designed for 110 volts and taking it into the laundry room and plugging it into the 220 it just overloads and burns itself out because it doesn't have the capacity to handle the load and when it's when I am the center of the universe eventually the same thing happens to me i don't have the capacity to handle the load that's why i i love i love working with newcomers and i love the new people and the pre-surrendered new people in our group because they have that they look tired all the time I mean, because there's stuff to worry about. All that. I mean, this is heavy. And and you ask them how they're doing. How you doing? They always they always go. (sighs) (laughs) Hanging in there. (laughs) I had one guy say. I said, How you doing? He goes, Well, I guess it's not bad if you don't weaken. This gal, one time, she came back into the detox meeting that she had been in detox and she was out now running the universe for a month. And she came to the meeting. I said, How's it going? And she had this her big eyes and she said, It's too big. <laughs> I knew exactly. I said, Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's too big. It's awful. It's uh, infinite God rather than our finite selves. And this thing about trust, um, you know, I had an experience. I was sober a little while, and I was at a retreat. And Between the afternoon, there was a big break, and I'm sitting with an old-timer out on the lawn, and I'm talking to him. And I, I'm, a, I'm in early sobriety, and I hadn't really gone through this process yet. And I'm kind of, I'd gone through kind of a BS version of the steps in early sobriety, but I hadn't really done this yet. And I'm telling this guy, I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I get up in the morning and I get down on my knees and I say the third step prayer. Turn my will and my life over the care of God. And five minutes later, I'm worrying about stuff. I'm full of anxiety. I'm running the scenarios about when I get to work, what they'll do, what I'll do. You know, all that stuff. It's driving me crazy. It's wearing on me. And he said, he said, well, you pray, don't you? I said, yeah, I pray all the time. He said, do you believe in faith? you believe in God? I said, yeah, I know. I'm sober longer than I've ever been since I... First took a drink when I was a young kid, and I know it's God. I know it's not me. I, I know I've relapsed for seven and a half years. God's God's doing this. He said, "You know something?" He said, "Guys like you and me, we can pray fervently, we can have all the faith in the world, and we can still die of alcoholism." He said, "For us, faith isn't enough. We have to have something bigger than faith. We have to have faith in action, and he says it has to be. We have to have trust." And I, didn't, I must have looked at him like I didn't know what he was talking about. He says, I'll tell you the difference between faith and trust. He said, if you went to a circus and you sat in the audience and you watched the tightwire act, you could watch a guy come out to the edge of the platform pushing a wheelbarrow. You'd sit in the audience and have all the faith in the world. He's a professional. He can cross that tightwire pushing that wheelbarrow. Say to yourself, bet she's he's done it a thousand times. Absolute faith. He can do it. But if you had trust, you'd go up there and get in the wheelbarrow. And when he said that I I got I got my chest got tight. You know, I oh, wait a minute. Oh, and I knew what he meant. I knew I had he, I had to act live my life as if I'm in that wheelbarrow Right? Stop the defensiveness. Stop the I can't do it. I I I like the idea. I like to talk about in the wheelbarrow. I'd like to go to book studies and read about getting in the wheelbarrow. I'd like to sit at coffee and we can philosophize about getting in the wheelbarrow. But I don't want to get in the wheelbarrow. I'm afraid. i got some old prejudices about God. I'm afraid I'll get in that wheelbarrow. I'll get about halfway out that wire. I'll hear this voice go, Is that Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the little son-bitch that played with himself, Bob? <laughs> I have those fears. You know, I don't measure up. I, I've been, you know, I, I just feel flawed. I, oh, so I couldn't trust. And what has happened to me is exactly what it talks about on page 53. In my sobriety, I, I, was, I was eventually, I was crushed by a self-imposed crisis as I could not postpone or evade. I couldn't make it go away. I can't get any relief. I am crushed by these self-imposed crises. And I had to fearlessly face the proposition that God is either either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. And it's, it gives me a choice. But with me, I got to a place where there wasn't a choice. Either God is here and he's everything or I am dead here. I'm dead in the water. I'm in a lot of trouble. And I found myself forced, forced by a lack of alternatives on occasion to have to walk through terrifying stuff as if God was in charge. And I tell you, my everything in me says it was going to be awful. He's not. But you guys encouraged me to act as if he was. He was. And amazing things started to happen. I'd get out the backside, and I would be okay. And I realized that I was something had me. Something had my back. Something was on my side here. And that is the only way I've I've been able to trust God. I am not a truster. I'm a cynic by nature. I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature. I, I I can't believe. I've never been able to believe things that because. People say you should believe them. I used to as a little kid I tried to believe in church the things that they said. But I'm a show me kind of guy. And God was very gracious and he, he really came to me and, and he it was an amazing, amazing thing. And I'll tell you what I've noticed in my sobriety is the tug of the tug of war is between trusting in God and relying on self. It's between a a life of self reliance and a life of God-dependency, a life of self-centered, and a life of other-centeredness, a life driven by fear, and a life motivated by love. And somewhere I am I am caught in the middle in this push-pull between these forces, and the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous are the actions that move me towards the light, that move me towards that side. And this, this tug of war and this propensity towards self-centeredness and self-reliance and fear and all the other stuff will always be in me. That's why when we get to step 10, it doesn't say continue to take personal inventory and if. No, when. When this side starts to win. And there's an old American Indian uh, story of of a, a young brave who's very conflicted and he's a good-hearted, brave, and he wants to be a good member of the tribe. And he goes to the elder, wise man, and he says, he says, old man, he says, "I, I don't understand. He said, some days I really feel a part of the tribe. And I love everyone here and I just want to be helpful. And I feel a sense of being a part of. And he says, other times I just, I hate everyone and I resent everyone. And everybody makes me anxious and I feel lost and separate. And and I'm so wrapped up in me, and and I go from one to the other. And he said, I don't understand. Why am I like this? And the old man said to him, he said, Son, your your life is like two dogs trapped in mortal combat a dark dog representing your fears and self, and a light dog, a dog of light representing love and harmony and the great spirit. And they're trapped in this sack in mortal combat to the death. And the young brave says, "Oh, old man, which one wins?" And the old man says, "Whatever one you feed, it's the one that wins." And I have spent my life feeding the wrong dog. See, when I'm scared or threatened, I enhance my—I always go for the ego and the defensiveness, and I always try to control and manage more. I—it is my nature to go to feed the wrong dog. And I think the one dog could represent my sense of my spirit, and the other dog could represent self. And I am I am a container that can only hold so much. If it's full of self, there's not much room for spirit. And if it's full of spirit, there's not much room for self. And it's like a teeter totter, like a balance beam. And I, whenever I'm having a spiritually bad hair day and I don't feel like I'm enough and I feel disconnected and isolated and desolate and alone, my natural inclination at that time is to gratify the ego. It's to go buy something, to indulge myself, try to get attention, all that stuff. And the problem with all of that stuff is you end up, if you feed the wrong dog, what you end up with is a guy like me who, who still feels awful about themselves and their life and alone, but I have a, I'm in a shinier container now. right? I've dressed it up even better. I've gotten a lot of attention. I've, I've created the hell even more. The separation between the person that I want you to think I am and the person I really know inside that I am. The abyss has gotten deeper. And when I am good of spirit, my ego seems to be in check. You know, when I'm really right with you and right with God, I don't need a new car. I don't need a lot of validation. I don't need to judge you because you're fine. You're just like me. I see myself in you, struggling with all the same things I struggle with. When I, myself is not good, my spirit is not good. I s when I pick you apart, trying to level the playing field. That's when I'm the most judgmental. And it always comes back to, it's always my relationship with God and with you and that I always feed the wrong dog and you guys have taught me how to feed the right dog a nonsensical things to me like when I feel bad and I'm I'm afraid and worrying about stuff and I'm, as Scott said clearing up the wreckage of my future and doing all that stuff it those are the times when I have this emptiness inside of me when I'm the most uh, you got to keep me off a car lot. When I'm like that, <laughs> I don't I don't hug any pretty girls when I'm like that. I stay out of the mall when I'm like that. Uh, I I just very susceptible to try to fill my holes that with those times, right? And my sponsor and people in A will say at times like they'll say, "Well, go down to detox. You know, those guys don't have any cigarettes. Take them a pack of cigarettes and see if you can find somebody that needs to talk." And it doesn't make sense, because when you're like that, you know you need, you need people that are doing a little better to help you with your serious problems than these, <laughs> these people down on Skid Row. I mean, really? But problem but I go down and I do that. I fed the right dog. I come away from there and I feel good. And I don't need then all of a sudden, I, I can go to the car lot because I don't need a car because my spirit's good. I don't need any of this other stuff because I'm good. It's funny how these things, these forces are diametrically opposed to each other within me. And I only get to feed one dog here. Um, Sex. Tell you, big deal. Over the years, if I get a phone call, 3 o'clock in the morning, some guy that wants to commit homicide, suicide, or drink, it's usually about a relationship. I'm really glad that it says in here that we're not to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. Oddly enough, we're not inventorying sex. We're inventorying harms. It's how do I treat God's kids when my sexual instincts are aroused? How do I treat God's kids when I, the three basic instincts for a need for security, when I'm afraid of being alone, when my need for... Uh, sex or my need for prestige or a common a place in society are threatened how do i act under those circumstances how how when i those three instincts are threatened i'm most i'm most prone to be selfish most prone to be dishonest most prone to come from a place of of harming others and i i tell you what i've discovered um I sponsor a lot of guys, and it's and I sponsor a lot of single guys, and I sponsor quite a few married guys, but a lot of single guys. And when it's a problem, nine chances out of ten, it comes back to dishonesty. You know what happens? And I've I've been a liar a lot of my life, but I've never been a liar because I'm a liar. I'm a liar because I'm afraid. I'm afraid because uh, I believe certain things that I don't. I think, are so I believe, I'm not enough. So I have to embellish who I am to you because I believe that as is, you won't love me. So I create this pre- persona, and I and guys I sponsor, I, ca- I catch them in this all the time, and it's a persona. It's like a composite of Bob's best days. It's the best of Bob persona, enhanced a little bit and made a little bit bigger than life. And that's the only guy you meet. And then in the, and the women do the same thing. So I get a phone call. Some guy's been with a girl for about 10, 12 months. And he says, I don't know. She's changed. <laughs> no, she hasn't. The real her finally showed up. You can't keep up the facade indefinitely. Eventually, all the little quirks and all the little stuff starts to come out. And, you know, it's, it's, it may take a year and a half, but eventually the guy's going, pull my finger. I mean, it's a, ev- you know, ev- you know, the, he doesn't bring the flowers home anymore and it's pull my finger. You know, it's, 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 it's stop. It's st- I mean, it's because you can't, the real guy eventually comes to the surface. And that's a little crude and it's an exaggeration of the, of the, of the differences. But, but it does, that's what really happens. And uh, I, think, I think I think, in order to, to smash the, the lie, you have to take a risk. And the risk is I have to bring myself to you in all the self-centeredness and the, all the pe- propensity to, to childishness at times and the things I worry about and my ability to get self-consumed and distant and all my character defects. Put them right on the table. And then... Then I get to I get to the possibility of experiencing the greatest thing a guy will ever experience. That someone might love you, as is. But if you if they fall in love with the facade, eventually it turns south on you, and the little voice in your head will will be right one more time. See, when they really found out about me, they didn't love me. It just reinforces that. And reinforces that and reinforces that. And I think more problems occur from writing checks we can't cash in relationships than anything else. And people feel disillusioned and hurt, and they don't know who they're with all of a sudden, and then they can't trust the person, right? If you just be yourself. What it says on the back of your AA chip to thine own self be true. If you have to get in if you have to be somebody other than what you are to be loved, you're trying to be loved by the wrong person I'm telling you. you're trying to be loved by the wrong person. And that uh, one more thing about sex and then I'll, 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 I'll turn it over to Scott um, We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all, have sex problems, and that is good. For, that's good information. I tell you, I've heard a lot of inventories, and I've done a. I've, I've done a lot of relationship, participated in sex relationship workshops over the years, where there's a lot of interaction with the people. And one of the things I've I've realized that regardless of the appearance of the individual on the outside, we all have sex problems. I have never met an alcoholic yet that didn't have feelings of inadequacy. No matter, they could go to the gym 10 days a week and you can't overcome that. You can spend a million dollars in plastic surgery and you can't overcome that. Matter of fact, it just feeds the beast because you can never be enough that way. And I don't know an alcoholic, if they're honest with you, would really ever felt good about themselves naked. Really. Really or ever felt like they were enough. And we all come to the table like that. We all come in here, and my great fear is is that if you ever really found out about me and some of the things I've done sexually that I was ashamed of, um, that I felt bad about, that you would judge me. And you know a funny thing? In AA we have the whole spectrum of sexuality. We have people whose sexual inventory might have only been one or two people in their whole life. Because they were so <coughs> locked up on this end of the spectrum that they had, to be, they had to have a fifth of whiskey in them to even entertain the idea of having sex. And then we have people on the other end of the spectrum that you don't want to let them alone with your French poodle. I mean I mean, <laughs> I, mean every, I mean we got everything on that spectrum in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll tell you what I've discovered. No matter where you are, it ain't right. No matter where you are, the people on the one end feel like there's something wrong with them that they're so uptight. And what's wrong with me? And the people on the other end that are trying to validate themselves and prove their sex, prove their man or womanhood over and over and over again, and are the, validating themselves with attention. And, and they know that that's not right. They know something's wrong with them too. When you pull away the facade, we all come here with sex problems. The book says we'd hardly be human if we if we couldn't if we didn't. And so we, dust, we, we inventory the harm we've done to God's kids. Where have I caused harm? Um, and then I get a chance to ask God to mold my future sex, uh, to mold my ideals. So I have a, and I think the most important question in the sex inventory is the question of what I, have, I could have done instead. And the reason is if I'm going to ask God to mold my ideals and give me a vision of my future sex life, I am going to have to build that vision not only in what I want to be, but also on what I don't want to be. And I've got to get an, a clear vision of what I should have done instead. Because I'll tell you what will happen. It will come up again. Maybe in a different, different place with a different face. But the same thing will come up again. I think sobriety in the realm of the spirit is the realm of do-overs. We get a lot of do-overs here. And I've had situations where I've, I've handled things really badly at one time. And I'll, four, five, six years later, I'll be in a very similar situation. And I'm the last time I was the guy I didn't like, this time I get to be the guy I'll feel good about. Right? Because I asked myself, what could I have done instead? And I talked to my sponsor about it. Scott?
0: Picking up on what he was saying, i got a lady friend in Nashville that says, Life is tough. First you get the test, then you get the lesson. (laughs) Then if you don't get the lesson, you get the test again. (laughs) And I think that might be right. And the same one said, she went to a dog race one time and they, uh, they shot the gun and the rabbit took off and the dogs were chasing this thing. The mechanical rabbit malfunctioned in the first turn and stopped and the lead dog caught that rabbit. And he is tail over tea kettle into the ditch with a mechanical rabbit in his mouth and she said, I am exactly like that rabbit. I am like the dog. I am shot out of a gun chasing some mechanical rabbit that ain't going to be what I want if I catch it. Oh. <laughs> Recent one, my uh, our beautiful daughter Jamie is uh, sober 15 years, and she presented us with twin grandsons almost four years ago. Had one of them at the doctor the other day, and she said to the doctor, hey, we're saving this boy a seat in AA." And the doctor says, uh, be careful. You don't want to program that boy." And in addition to that, it's not that three-year-olds act like alcoholics; it's that alcoholics act like three-year-olds. <laughs> I don't like that any better than you did. Okay, Paige. Uh, Page 67, somebody asked a question at the break that really helped me a lot because I left out something I think is pretty important. We were talking about resolutely looking for our own mistakes. It's kind of interesting, uh, those of us who were abused as children, I happen to be one of those. What was my mistake? I mean, that that five-year-old was innocent. What was my mistake? And I've found two mistakes so far for myself on that. One is that I carried that resentment. That was one. And the other one is that I did so much damage in that person's name. Okay, maybe that'll help you with the forgiveness process. I hope so. That's the only reason I'm sharing it. And it was important to me. Something else Bob touched on reminded me of of one of the truths that I stumbled across. And again, red flags, just one of mine. I find out what cool is, not what is cool, but what cool is. Cool is is cool is a cheap external substitute for self-esteem. Because people who have self-esteem don't do things to appear cool to other people. They have no reason to. And back when I was doing things to appear cool to other people, it's because I hated me. And I thought if I could do an act you would like of some kind, then I would be okay and could hang out with you. That's what it is. And I think that's the reason the price for coolness has gotten so high is because it doesn't work. That's why it continues to escalate. Page 72. Zipping right along all the way to step five here, a day and a half later. About uh, five lines from the bottom. Wondering why should I do step five? The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Oh, okay. Well, there's a reason. Page 73, first full paragraph. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. Remember our actor before? Want to run the whole show? Okay. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. The inconsistency is is made worse by things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he has revolted. At certain episodes, he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension that makes for more drinking. That's a tight circle, isn't it? Yeah. Page 74. Paragraph at the bottom of the page begins with notwithstanding. If you count up three lines above that, they're going to tell you there aren't any rules in AA. There are three. Here's the first one. The rule is we must be hard on ourselves but always consider of others. This is referencing who's to hear our fifth step. And uh, I want to encourage, if anybody's new in recovery, don't tell, all right? Save it up. You, you don't need to go try to make amends to somebody yet. It's not time. It's always put the numbers in front of the steps, Right? Don't right? Don't do 9 till you've done 8. Don't do 8 till you've done 7. Get the idea? Do I need to do the rest of that? You got it? Okay. I think it's really important. All right, so there's one of the rules. Here's another one on page 101. Second paragraph from the bottom. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. And it goes on to talk about your spiritual condition, etc. That's good reading there. Page 118 <clears throat> also contains a rule. Paragraph begins in the middle of the page. We women count up three lines from that. Live and let live is the rule. My sponsor turned that around. He said, let live and live. Yeah, when I free them, then I become free. It's, I have my own permission to make mistakes, and that's a huge freedom. Because if it's okay with me, that I, make, and I think that's my job. I think it's my assignment to, uh, to make mistakes. I, my own, I'm not going to get into this. I, I hope I'm not out of bounds here. If I am so, please tell me. But uh, in my own particular religious beliefs, the job of being perfect is already taken. <laughs> And there's not like an address where I could maybe mail a resume and get inv- an and interview and get the job of being perfect. If it's not my job to be perfect, is it not, therefore, my job to make mistakes? I think it's my assignment, and I'm good at it. <laughs> and as we talked about earlier, it's not that I learn from the mistakes, but from living with the results of the mistakes. So It's okay that I make mistakes. It's all right. The question is, what do I do with them? Do I learn the lessons? Am I committed to it? That's what this thing is about. Top of 75, when we decide who is to hear our story, I think there are a lot of really good ways to do a fifth step, and I'm going to describe to you what my lineage has passed to me. I, I think Bob's is somewhat different. He's going to share that with you. I think what your sponsor says is the correct way to do this. Um, I know in, in some lineages they read their four step. We didn't do that in mine. And it says who is to hear our story. So what I'm supposed to do is to tell my story. The fourth step was rather specific, as you'll recall. It was a series of lists, observations, and prayers that covered resentment, fear, and sexual misconduct. There are things in my fifth step that weren't on for. And it's not because I left them out on purpose. because they weren't called for. Four fourth step is very specific. I'm asked sometimes what I think about writing the story of your life, and I want you to know I think it's a great idea. I hope you take a four step also. <laughs> and then it says here, it's Still on the same paragraph in 75, he should realize that we are engaged upon a life and death errand. Okay, here we are, threatening your life again. <laughs> I hope you're not used to it yet. I, mean, I hope it still lights you up. And then it looks to me like about a one-sentence direction on how to go about that. It says we pocket our pride and go to it illuminating, which means to shine light into. Illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. And what I was shown is that we begin that prayerfully in a place where we won't be interrupted. And we have Kleenex, and we have drinks, and we have the phones turned off. And um, I invite the man who's doing his fifth step to ask God for clarity of mind and the courage to tell it and whatever else he's comfortable with. And it's one of the times I get the chance to ask God to make me perfect, and that's what I do. I ask him to make me a perfect channel of whatever he has and to get me out of the way and that this would be to this man's higher good and to God's glory and for me not to take any credit. And, um, and then it says, we go to it, illuminating. If you haven't done a fifth step yet and, uh, and you're afraid of it, I'm really glad to hear that. Because the ones I've seen confident going into their fifth step know what they're not going to tell. <clears throat> right? you need to be puckered heading into your first one. It, uh, I, I think that's really important. If you want to do a short fifth step, if you don't want this to last hours and hours and hours, cover the two or three worst things first be out of there pretty fast. If you, uh, if you start with the easy stuff and try to build up to it, you could be there a long time. And uh, what I was taught in my lineage is that we don't hear fist steps, we exchange. And when someone I sponsor tells me something they did, if I did something in that category, they hear mine. Now, I don't do my whole fist step with them, but anything they touch on. And if they miss two or three of the worst ones I did, I make sure I cover those at the end. Because they need that information. We need to know that. And the book talks about that later. I'm not going to go to it right now. But it, it talks about that. I think that's really, really important. At, uh, and then we have the uh, the fifth step promises here in the middle of page 75. I'm I'm not going to read them, but uh, you can. They're magnificent. At the end of his uh, fifth step, I tell him the truth. And the truth is that I believe God forgives him. And I forgive him, and I'd like for him to observe that I didn't run screaming and that I wasn't impressed and that that it's okay. It's really going to be okay, that God is big enough and, I think, eager to forgive and that uh, the rest of his forgiveness process for himself will probably happen somewhere in step nine. That's been my experience with it anyway. And uh, and then I ask a series of questions, and the questions I ask at the end, uh, if I haven't heard these, and if I've heard them, I skip them. Are have you had sex with animals or family members? Have you stolen anything? Have you physically hurt anyone? Have you had a homosexual experience? And forgive me, this is a little bit of a political hot potato. I'm going I'm to let me warm this one up just a little bit. If you've done what I'm about to describe and you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. I'm not here to indict you. I'm here to talk about how I got free. As a uh, so I hope you I hope you heard that. As a young man, I paid for an abortion and I used to drink over that and think about the what ifs that went with that and by the way if, if you've had one of those I can help you get free please see me please see me and um, because it is possible because I did and I ask them if they've been involved in abortion and those are the questions I ask and I'm not trying to make them tell me something they're unwilling to tell I'm trying to pick the scab I don't want him driving away saying to himself well I just didn't think of it no no so, so I'm going to point at it and then that finishes the first half of step five then at the bottom of page 75 it says returning home we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour that's pretty specific carefully reviewing what we have done we thank god from the bottom of our heart i think that's a prayer that we know him better and believe me when you have done this the first time and you feel lighter and your sponsor (coughs) didn't run screaming and you heard some of the things they did you will know god better and you'll know yourself better too taking this book down from our shelf. I require the men that I sponsor go home and put their book up on the shelf. It says here very clearly. And that's one of those tongue-in-cheek things. Turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully we're reading the first five. We ask, this is another prayer, if we have omitted anything for a building an arts through which we shall walk a free man. And it asks a series of questions having to do with, are you thorough? Have you been thorough? Have you done everything you could possibly do? And then, interestingly enough, it doesn't say we take three weeks off. we turn the page at page 76 where it says if we can answer to our satisfaction that's a series of questions about you having been thorough for the first five having prayed and meditated about them for for an hour it says we then look at step six that means right now we have emphasized willingness being indispensable are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things we've admitted are objectionable can he take them all, every one and then here's a prayer If we cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. There is a six-step prayer if you need it. Some do, some don't. And next, right after that, it says, when ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Amen. I thought for a long time that that prayer asked God to remove all of my character defects. And about a year and a half ago, they changed it and put in that good and bad thing. I swear that wasn't there. And it had never occurred to me that God could use some of my character defects as tools to help me and maybe some other people. And I had one of my character defects get bad out of hand and was unaware of it until it almost did some very, very serious damage. And it pulled me down off of my pedestal, I'll tell you right now. I was pretty impressed with the work St. Scott was doing right up until then. And God used some of my character defects to help me, to save me, I think. Powerful God. Powerful, powerful, powerful God. My sponsor explained it to me this way. He said the book doesn't say anything at all about you removing your own defects of character. You don't have the power. He said, your character defects are all self-centered, without exception. And self does not have the power to push self out of the center. And if it did, it would leave a vacuum. And so the answer for you isn't to work on your character defects. Work on your character defects. You're living in the problem. The answer for you is to work on what we've taught you here, which is how to have a God-centered life. I have three particular character defects I refer to as my spiritual barometers. At two years sober, I was trying to wipe them out myself, and I I was really. It was not pretty. Let me leave it that way. And I finally realized that these things were great helps to me. And my three spiritual barometers are lying, not actually lying, improving really the truth. It's so much prettier. And um, swearing. And my attitude toward those of you who possibly got your driver's license boxes, uh, driver's license out of Cheerios boxes, right? And. If, if one of those things is in trouble, if I look, they're all in trouble. Because they all seem to get out at the same time. And I don't work on those things. What I do is inventory over the last few days. What's my spiritual maintenance program look like? How much time am I spending in prayer? Am I meditating? Generally, that's the first thing that goes for me. How long has it been since you took the meeting into the jail? When's, when's the last time you told the sponsor the truth about what's going on? Who have you tried to help? Are you letting people in in traffic? Uh, how much spiritual literature have you read in the last three days? I Take a look, there are holes in my spiritual program. Oh, these things wouldn't be happening. So I don't work on my character defects. I go back and do the things you've taught me to do. And three days later, you can cut me off in traffic and almost hit me. And I will smile at you from the depths of my soul, and I will wave at you, and I will wave my entire hand. And I will say, God, go that one, go with that one. He's going to need some help today. And I'm so grateful we didn't have an accident. Now I make mistakes myself. God bless you, miss, Mister. And I can't change me from the raving maniac from three days before. I don't have the power. So I don't. When I have a problem with a character defect, I don't focus on the darkness. What I do is I invite the light in. And when the light shows up, the darkness flees because the darkness cannot exist in the light. When I invite the light in, my character defects just recede. I don't take power over them. I take them someplace where they can be handled. It works for me. We'll uh, start again at uh, 35 after the hour.
1: My name is Bob Darrell. I'm an alcoholic. If you do buy those tapes, if you play Scott's portion backwards, you'll hear the meaning of life. <laughs> if you'll if you'll pour, if you'll play my portion backwards, you'll hear Clancy is Satan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's my sponsor. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, I am really enjoying this. I, you know, this is our third one together, and they're never the same. And I've done, I've done hundreds of these, and they're never the same. I never, I mean, I get the same kind of some of the same stories, but you never know what's going to spin out, what news going to come out. And it's, it's. Um, the Hindus have a saying that. Uh, that we realize is true when we start sponsoring people or we start taking people through the steps that the student never learns the lesson until he becomes the teacher, you know. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm learning more doing this than uh, often than the people sitting listening to it. A couple things. uh, I uh, I really like that part that Scott started with about the double life and step five, you know. That we are like the actor who wants to have this facade to the out to the world of this reputation we want to have everybody have for us, but the secret knowledge inside ourselves of what we really are. And you know what I've discussed? That didn't that didn't stop uh, when I got sober. Matter of fact, it got more refined in sobriety. I remember coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in my first few, few years and feeling awful. And I, I had a gambling addiction my first year and a half of sobriety. I remember times coming into meetings almost suicidal because I blew my whole paycheck. And out in the parking lot it was like I'd put this recovery suit on to come into the meetings to look good. Because God forbid you'd catch me with my spiritual pants down. Right? <laughs> And I was dying, and I was dying, trying in this trying to be somebody I'm not. And, um, and the funny thing about an AA, in order to get help, you kind of have to look like somebody who needs it. <laughs> and I think the big the big difficulty here is how to get help and not look like you need it. <laughs> well, thank you. I may have to need that with one of my sponsees one day. I. <laughs> crazy how many people in here have ever heard of fifth step raise your hand uh, oh wow wow how many has heard more than more than four uh, you may get this um, einstein said something one time he said the great illusion of mankind was that there was more than one of us here <laughs> you hear enough fifth steps it's the same guy it's this it's the same i've heard probably close to 200 of them i'm waiting for something new i have just i just did one a couple days not too long ago and i'm just sitting there and say yeah, yeah same stuff i'm one i'm kind of secretly vicariously wishing you would come up with something new with you know visqueen and jumper cables or something I don't, you know something exciting you know but it's no it's the same pathetic stuff it's the selfish insecure frayed little kid trying to be something that he's not and stepping on other people's toes and trying to f- fill the vacancy with all kinds of bizarre self-centered gratification events and you know it's the same thing it's there's nothing new here um The the Hindus have a story of creation that I like a lot. It's different than the Judo-Christian story of creation that I was raised with. I mean, we all know that one about, you know, God made the heavens and the earth in seven days and all that stuff, right? Uh, But their story is that God existed uh, timelessly unto himself forever. And he got bored. And he got bored and devised a cosmic game. And the cosmic game was that he broke himself into an infinite number of parts, gave all the parts amnesia, and the game is which parts are going to claim their inheritance first? Which parts are going to awaken or achieve what the Hindus call enlightenment and realize that they are not separate? That it is an illusion of the ego that tells me my case is different, that I am separate from you. That I am actually am you, that we are the same, and that's what they call enlightenment. And they call it Maya, the great illusion. It's the hallucination of the ego is that we're separate people. And with God, we come here feeling so separate and so different. And in time, and I think starting, starting with the simplest identification in meetings, hearing people talk about themselves and realizing you're like them. Followed right down through the fourth step and this was our course when you're starting to realize the people you've separated yourself from are actually sort of like you in a way and, and, and you start to make those amends and you start to hear fifth steps and you start to realize and massage away the hallucination that there is no separation, that we are one. Um, I, if there's a, I'm not one who plugs movies from AA but I just saw a movie that really impacted me a lot. It was called uh, what the bleep are we doing here, <laughs> or, or what the bleep are we here for? And if you've ever seen that, it was put together by some quantum physicists. And this, we're in an exciting age right now. It's the